So my kids are really into reading books. And because the last time I got to stand up here and preach, I started with a distressing story of religious trauma and spiritual abuse. Today I thought I'd start with pictures of my kids. <laughs> All right? This is them reading their books. Uh, this next one, go to the next one. Um, this is my oldest, Addison, reading to her, who was at the time, her baby brother, Gabe. And then we've got Jace and Addison reading on the couch. They're reading Harry Potter. I'm not sure what that honorary look is on his face, but I know they're enjoying the series. So with so many easily accessible film adaptations of children's and young adult books, we want them to read the books that they're interested in before they see the movie. And this is what they're doing with the Harry Potter series. And that's what they're doing right here. They're reading Harry Potter. After completing each book, then they can watch the movie that goes with it. Well, I had the opposite experience when I read through the Harry Potter series. Even though the books started coming out when I was in middle school, I didn't, did I hear a chuckle? <laughs> no. When I was in middle school, the books started coming out, but I didn't read the books until I was an adult, and I had already been through the entire movie series. But doing it this way had an interesting effect. I knew the stories well, but going back and reading the books opened up so much more details and richness and depths within the story that I had not yet explored. Well, this is how I feel going through the prodigal son, digging into this parable. Today we are continuing our series, it's called Homegoing, looking at the three main characters in the parable of the prodigal son. And today's message focuses on the father. Now there are three big themes on the father that for me, as I have dug into these stories, it's been like reading the book version for me after only seeing the movies. More details have sprung to life and I hope that these may spring to life for you too. So here are the big three. Compassion, embrace, and letting go. All of these are an expression of love. And I hope as we go through this story that you will see that the younger son was loved in all of these ways by the father. I hope that you will see and experience and feel that you are loved in all of these ways by God. And all of us can be an expression of this kind of love toward our sons and daughters and everybody who shares in our humanity. Let's pray. God, please help us to hear words from you that spark new life in us, abundance in your kingdom coming, and paint a picture for us of the home we all hope for, and the home that is ready to welcome each and every one of us home. Amen. So a man had two sons. 
This is how the parable begins. And right off the bat, ancient hearers of the story would have their ears perk up. Stories of two sons permeate the origins of Israel. Adam had two very famous sons, Cain and Abel. Abraham had two prominent sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Each of these figures play important roles in biblical accounts of blessing and curse, separation and reconciliation, and the continuation of the lineage of people who call themselves heirs to Abraham, heirs to God's promise. So a man had two sons. Where could this story be going? The sons in our story were heirs to their father. And to catch you up, last week's message focused on the younger son who asked his father for what was promised to him. He asked for his inheritance early, a share of the father's livelihood, indicating that he wished the father was dead. And he took off, spending lavishly, living irresponsibly, and eventually ravaged by a famine that would find him broke, hungry, and headed back home to the father. And that is where we pick up today. Luke 15, verse 20 says, so he got up and he went to the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to the son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. The first of the big three themes that we are going to dig into is compassion. Now, I think the modern English word here doesn't quite grasp either the depth of the Greek word nor older English definitions of compassion. Merriam-Webster.com today says that compassion is sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. But the Greek word, and this is a mouthful, it's splachnidzomai, and it means to be moved. Are you ready for this? It means to be moved in your inward parts. Strong's Concordance, one of the foremost authorities on biblical languages, says that it means to have the bowels yearn. And honestly, doesn't splachnidzomai kind of sound like that? To have the bowels yearn. It's a sympathy you can feel. Too often, compassion is reduced to, as the modern definition states, a sympathetic consciousness. But it is really more of a physical sympathetic empathy, being moved in a way that you can feel in your body by someone else's plight. Language, as it always does, it changes over time. So I checked my handy 1604 English dictionary reprint, which calls compassion fellow feeling. It's a sharing in the feeling of someone else. 
Now, this dictionary came out in the same general time frame as the first King James Bible. So when they translated splunknizomai as compassion, I think they were, they were probably onto something. But in our time, this idea of fellow feeling gives me more of a sense of the word empathy. The ability to understand and share feelings of another person. But the word empathy didn't exist or wasn't used widely until the 1900s. When it finally came onto the scene, compassion and empathy drifted apart and took on distinct meanings. However, I think to understand this passage and the compassion of the Father, we need to bring the words back together to fit modern language. When the Father saw the Son in the distance, he wasn't moved with sympathetic consciousness, but he was filled with compassionate empathy that moved to the very core of his body. Now, don't forget, famine had struck. The son was forced to eat the pig's food to survive, and the father felt the son's pain, the hunger, the fear the sense of being lost. Christians around the world who live in cultures where famine is more prominent, regions where famine is more prominent, do not breeze past this important detail. Famine is the ability to be, has the ability to become a large-scale natural disaster. And the Father entered into that pain, into the hunger, into the fear, into the dread with compassionate empathy. And that is a picture of how God enters into our world. He enters into our midst, not with some sort of pity that looks on from a distance and feels sorrow. No. God is among us and in fact runs after us. God has compassionate empathy for us and as our story goes, embraces us. Which leads me to the next theme, embrace. In our version on the screen, embrace is seen in this line, through his arms around him. Now the New American Standard Bible takes this whole line and makes it embrace. And in the Greek, it says that the father fell upon the neck of him. Now that's a figure of speech indicating embrace, but it reminds me of two other brothers, two other sons that we mentioned earlier, Jacob and Esau. In a powerful story of reconciliation, Esau, who had his birthright stolen from him by his brother Jacob, chooses forgiveness and blessing instead of revenge and curse. Allow me to set the scene. Jacob and Esau meet up in a field, both with their entourage. Jacob looks up and sees Esau with 400 men who Jacob thinks are bent on revenge. It's not looking good. But in a surprising twist, Esau ran. He ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. 
and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. Our parable of the father echoes this ancient story. Esau had every right to be mad, except his inheritance, his livelihood, his blessing was stolen. But upon meeting again, he ran. He fell upon his brother's neck and he kissed him. The parable of the father teaches us that the story of Esau isn't merely some incredible, far-fetched story about idealized reconciliation. But instead, this is indeed how our father runs after and embraces us. But there's something else about this word, fell. He fell upon his neck There are instances of another Greek word, pipto, being used in the New Testament. It's used for verses like, the rain fell and the floods came. Or some seeds fell on the path, other seeds fell on rocky ground, other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain. And 91 other times like it, where something or someone falls. But the Father's embrace he fell upon his neck is different. It's a compound word in the, Greek, in the Greek, making it mean something more like upon fell. Instead of pipto, it's epipipto. Strong's concordance says epipipto means press upon. It's this idea that the embrace is extra or power embrace. Epipipto is used only 11 times in the New Testament, and here are some of the other ways that it's used. It's used to describe the Holy Spirit falling upon people. It's used to describe fear falling upon people. And even one instance in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul falls upon a young child in order to resurrect him from the dead. This is no ordinary hug. The father power embraced his child in a show of reconciliation and togetherness and a declaration that the son had indeed come back from the dead. And the father was so filled with joy He didn't even need to hear the son's apology. Last week you heard how the son had his big apology speech all planned out. He wanted to prove himself, and when he got to the father, he was ready to deliver the speech that he had rehearsed. But he only gets to deliver half the speech. Starting in verse 21, Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Verse 
I absolutely love what the Message Bible says here. It says, the son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God and I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. And trying to get at the heart of what's happening here, it says, but the father wasn't listening. Not only does the father interrupt the big speech, but he can't be bothered. There's no time for that. It shattered the son's sense of self Sufficiency, a term that Rob pointed us to last week with the son. The son couldn't even get all the way onto the property as the welcoming father, throwing caution and dignity to the wind, ran after the son in a beautiful act of powerful embrace. And the celebration begins. The fatted calf would be saved only for the biggest celebration the robe for the honored guest, the ring as a sign of authority and familial identity, and the sandals a sign of freedom that the son was fully, powerfully, intensely embraced. Now, I've read multiple um, sources that talk about this idea that slaves would have gone barefoot during this time. See, the son came home saying, I'll be one of your hired servants, just let me come home. But instead, the father clothes him with sandals, a signifier of freedom. And I imagine this to be a very emotional scene. We talked about Harry Potter at the beginning of the message. My kids love the series. I love the series. We all do. And there's a scene in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets that I think captures this image really well. uh, Spoiler. Spoiler alert if uh, you haven't got to the second book or movie yet. Throughout the Harry Potter series, house elves are servants who are bound to their human masters by deep and impenetrable laws of magic. There are some humans who take advantage of their house elves and other humans who want to see them set free. And the only way to actually set them free is by providing them with clothes. Dobby is a house elf who is abused by his master's family. But Harry Potter befriends Dobby He has compassion for him and he sets him free in an emotional scene by tricking Dobby's master into presenting him with clothes, a sock hidden within a book. Thus, he is freed. This is the scene I think of as the father presents these clothes to the son. We thought you were dead, but you're alive. We thought you were exiled, hearkening back to the exile of Israel, but you are with me. We thought the famine would have claimed you, but you are here at the abundant and nourishing and life-giving table of grace. But the father didn't need to be tricked. Instead, he said, you my son. You thought you were indebted to me, but you are freed. 
which leads us to our last theme, letting go. Can we free ourselves and others? Can we let go of control? Can we let go of the need to always be right? Has anyone here ever struggled with harping on something longer than you needed to? (laughs) Yes. Um, My wife will tell you that that has something that I've struggled with from time to time. Uh, I think she'll also tell you that that's something that I am growing in. The father in our story let go. He let go of his need to control. He let go of his inhibitions, and he ran after and power embraced the younger son. He didn't harp on the son's choices, and he let go. Sometimes we also have to let go of the way we thought it was supposed to be in order to fully embrace someone and welcome them back in order to engage in true, compassionate empathy. But we must also let go of the way we thought it was supposed to be in order to be open to the way that God needs to work in and through us. Matthew four eighteen and 20 says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Here we go again with the two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once, they left their nets and they followed him. The word left, it's the Greek word aphiomi. These disciples, wafiami means lay aside, leave, or let go. These disciples on the threshold of something they knew little to nothing about, they let go. Afiami. They let go of their need to control as they left their fishing nets behind. They were at the boundary point of the known and the unknown. And then, a family, letting go, they stepped into the other side. But there's something else about this word that has been haunting me ever since I discovered the connection. There's another frequent New Testament usage of this word. And that is forgive. God has forgiven you. Afiemi. Let go. He has freed you, released you, let go of your crimes, and has run down the road to embrace you. And we must do the same. Forgiveness restores the balance. It releases people and communities from bondage. When we forgive those who have done wrongs against us, we follow the example of the forgiving father and release them from the retribution. 
Release them from the grip of our grudges. And when you release someone in that way, it somehow and mysteriously releases you. For if you forgive a fiamie, other people, when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, forgiving people who have wronged you can be hard, and it doesn't always mean forgetting. It doesn't mean that what they did was okay, and it doesn't always mean the relationship will be restored. But when you feel the weight and burden you were holding on to suddenly lifted, you have the opportunity to realize that much more the reality of God's kingdom breaking in. I also think about how the father in our parable let the son go at the beginning of the story. He released control of the situation and sent the son off on his journey. And just like the father, we must let go of some of our fears and release control. Sometimes we just want to skip to the end, to the good part, to the celebration. But in that assumption, we may take for granted that the good part may well be in the journey. When has it ever worked for someone to tell you all the right answers? And when you weren't even asking, and suddenly... You said, oh, now I get it. I think about this with my kids. Now, I'm not just going to send my kids out to be chewed up and spit back out by the world. But for me, this concept of a fiamy may look like letting go of some control. It may look like me not always needing to be right it may be letting them go on a journey of authentic questions and discovery. In the book, Three Big Questions That Change Every Teenager, a book from the Fuller Youth Institute, the authors write, as youth workers or parents, we may fear taking students to honest places of doubt, anger, or disappointment with God. However, failing to create an environment of authentic lament can result in spiritually and psychologically short-circuiting the necessary healing process. Sometimes our kids and our students and grandkids' journey of the younger son may look like walking into authentic places of doubt, lament for the world and religious harm, and disappointment. And if we can't let go of some control, then they can't be freed. But there's more. We can't be freed. But here's the thing. We can go with them. We can equip them the best way we know how and be ready with the Father's embrace 
at a moment's notice. This is what God does for us. Let's do this for everyone else. God doesn't just be God so that we can stand on the sidelines and shout, yay God, or just sing about it in our songs, or just learn about it in small groups. God does the things he does in part to show us how to be human. We are made in the image of God. In The Return of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nouwen, he writes, but how does it feel to say the Father is like me? Do I want to be like the Father? Do I want to be not just the one who is being forgiven, but also the one who forgives? Not just the one who is being welcomed home, but also the one who welcomes home. Not just the one who receives compassion, but the one who offers it as well. Last week, Rob pointed to the younger son's self-sufficiency, self-determination, and self-indulgence and called it the trifecta of human foolishness. But the father in our story shows compassion, embrace, and letting go. And when we replicate these, it can become in us the trifecta of human flourishing. All of these are expressions of love and all of these will change us and those around us when we accept that we are heirs to these acts of the Father. We are heirs to these acts of God. Henry Nouwen writes up his, uh, he wraps up the book writing that he was moved from the place of being blessed to the place of blessing. As I look at my own aging hands, I know that they have been given to me to stretch out toward all who suffer, to rest upon the shoulders of all who come, and to offer the blessing that emerges from the immensity of God's love. So we don't just receive God's love. We offer a blessing that emerges from the immensity of God's love. This tiny scroll was discovered about 40 years ago. It has been dated to the 7th century BC, making it older than the Dead Sea Scrolls. It contains a microscopic inscription, difficult or impossible to to read with the naked eye. And here's what it says. May Yahweh bless you and keep you. May Yahweh cause his face to shine upon you and grant you peace. This is a portion of the scripture that we know as number six, 24 through 26. And here's what the whole verse says. The Lord bless you and keep you. May God embrace you, power embrace you, bringing you back from the dead. You, we were once dead, but now we're alive. And the, may the Lord make his face 
shine on you, his countenance lifted. He smiles as he sees you from a distance and he runs after you to greet you and be gracious to you. Filled with grace, filled with releasing the captives, filled with forgiveness. And the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. You have peace in that realization that God's love surrounds all of us and we can surround others with that love. This blessing is found in the Hebrew Torah. It remains an inspiration for songs, prayers, and home decor like the sign that hangs in my youngest son's bedroom. And 600 plus years before Jesus was born, somebody was wearing this scroll, rolled up as an amulet, probably worn over their heart. It was a blessing between the wearer and God. It was a covenant, a commitment, a sign of God's commitment, a reminder that we are heirs to God's compassion, heirs to God's embrace, and heirs and enactors of God's forgiveness. As we sing our final song, I want to invite you to sit or stand or take whatever other posture that you choose. But here's what I do want you to do during this song. I want you to take communion. Take your time. During this last song, whenever you are ready, if you didn't get it when you came in, you can get communion from the doors where you entered the worship center. Whenever you are ready, take the bread and then the cup. Remember Christ who taught us to love God and neighbor. Remember this ancient and powerful blessing. Remember you are heirs to God's love and remember we are sent to be the blessing of compassion and embrace and forgiveness. This is the home we are running to and that is good news for all people.